strategy on you guys, but... Well, this morning, if you would open up to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And those of you that have heard me teach before, before you tune out, because we've already talked about Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to be talking about something very, very different today. So please pay attention. And, and it's my desire that, that we would all be able to, to just truly be open to whatever the Spirit would speak to us this morning. Um, this has been something that has been on my heart for a while my heart personally, not because it was something that needed to be shared with you, but because it was something that God has been working on in me. And so this morning we're going to be talking about worship and work. But let's go ahead and pray, and then uh, we'll also lift up all of the men that are coming back from the men's retreat this weekend, and then we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day and for bringing us here safely, for allowing us this this freedom, this opportunity to be able to study your word, to be able to gather together in a place like this every week and, and just to spend time focused upon you as one body in Christ, as one fellowship. We lift up to you all of the men that were able to attend the men's retreat this weekend. We pray, Lord, that, that you would continue to speak to each one of them, that you would work in and through each one of them, and, and that they would all come back completely recharged and just on fire and fully prepared for everything that, that you desire to accomplish in and through us. We also pray this morning for our time here together that, that you would order my thoughts, that you would give me your words, and that our hearts would all be open to the leading and guiding of your spirit, that you would speak to us through your spirit, through your word this morning. And so we give you this time, we give you all that we are, and we ask and pray all of these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to go ahead and read through the first nine verses. We're going to talk about a few things, and, and it's really primarily to set us up for an introduction to the rest of what we're going to talk about as far as worship and work. So in verse 1, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And so we go through this passage here, and there's a couple of things that we need to lay out before we even get into it. And the first one is that, that he's talking to the church. He's talking to those that are part of the family of God, that have an understanding of what it is to have a relationship with God. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is that he goes through a variety of different relationships. And this is not a catch-all, but this is to give us an understanding that it does cover all. So every single relationship that we find ourselves in, whether it's some kind of a, a friendship, whether it's a romantic interest, whether it's a, a parent to a child, a child to a parent, sibling relationship, or even a relationship that you have at work, 
coworkers, bosses, or maybe you are the boss. It covers all of these different things and more. And so as he's going through this, it gives us a better understanding of what work is supposed to look like in the life of a believer. And so when we talk about doing everything unto the Lord, it's a, a phrase that I'm sure that you've heard many, many times. You've heard it from this pulpit. And we talk about doing everything as unto Christ, doing everything as unto the Lord, doing everything for the glory of God to the best of our abilities. But what are some of the other reasons that we do the things that we do in our lives? I would suggest to you that, that there are a lot of them, and most of them are self-serving when you really stop and think about it. it for some of us, it, it's out of respect or honor. You know, right now, because of the, the, the deep political divide we have in our country, there are people that don't respect the person in the office of the president, but that understand the need to respect the office. Even if you don't respect the person, you respect the office. And so there's an honor, there's a, a respect factor there. And so sometimes we do it out of a respect or honor. Sometimes we do it out of duty. We just feel that it's our responsibility. You know, it's a, a, not a, a happy thing or a pleasant thing. It's something that we feel that we, we've been stuck in. But we do it out of responsibility because we need to, to do it and do it not necessarily unto the Lord, but do it because nobody else was going to do it. And so we have this duty to do it. The third thing is fear. You know, we fear the repercussions, the consequences, or we fear what, what might happen to us if we don't do it, or we fear what might happen if we were not there to pick up the slack. But the last one, I think, is the most important one, and this should really be able to cover all of the others and push all of them out of the way, and that is love. I mean, simply, we, those of us who are married especially, but all of us, I would hope, have been involved romantically at some point or another, and you understand what that is, that feeling of wanting to do things, not because of a fear of, of repercussion, not because you feel like you're obligated to do it, not because of necessarily a respect or honor in and of itself, but because of the love that you have for that person. You know, for those of us that, that are Christians here, we should have that love and even extend it beyond that, a greater sense of love with Jesus Christ. And as he pours that love directly back into our hearts, as Paul writes in Romans, then we should, by extension, be able to love others and have that be the motivating factor of all the things that we do. And so we love, we respect, we honor, we obey, we have duty, we have responsibility, but all of it comes back to love if we're doing this correctly. If we love Jesus, we'll honor him, we'll obey his commandments. And that includes the commands that he makes to Peter and to the disciples, to love, to make disciples, to feed his sheep. In John chapter 14, verses 15 and 21, it says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then he drops down in verse 21 and says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then in John 21, 17, we studied this a couple of Wednesdays ago. This is the end of this conversation between Jesus and Peter. And in verse 17, Jesus says to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Later on, as Jesus is preparing to ascend into heaven, he, he gives them the commands to go out into all the ends of the earth, to make disciples, to share and to teach all the things that they had seen and heard of him, 
to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have all of these things, and these are things that Jesus is telling us, these don't prove your love for me, but because you have a love for me, I'm asking you to go out and to do these things. And so it doesn't prove our love, it's, it's not for that purpose. It should just be a natural byproduct of our love. If we really love Jesus, if we can honestly say this morning that we have come into this place and we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have a living, breathing relationship with Jesus Christ, that we have asked him to be our Lord and Savior, to come and to take control of our lives, to have a say in every single thing, every single area, every single aspect. If we have given ourselves over to Jesus, then we need to be experiencing that love because he desires to give it to us. And then there should be some natural outworking of that love. And so that brings us back to Ephesians chapter 6. And so the first one there, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. For children to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. Also with an understanding that they love not only their parents, but they love the Lord. You know, I have four kids, seven, five, three, and one. And, and right now, we, we go through different things with each one of them. You know, at the stage that they're in in life and their understanding of, of not just the Bible and, and the gospel, but also just life in general. And right now, you know, my son is five years old, and he's a very, very bright kid. I know that I'm biased because he's my son, but, but I just see the difference in him. And he has, as I've shared before, what I would call a sweet spirit. You know, there are, there are very few people that, that I think could really be described that way. That it just, that's their default. You know, they go to sweetness, and that is him. You know, for, for my three-year-old daughter's birthday, he was painting her toenails. You know, he, he's just, and it wasn't something that she had to beg him and, like, force him. He just loves he loves. He just loves people, and he just wants to be able to, to share and to do things with them. And, and so when we found out that his teacher was making him run laps as a disciplinary action after school, we, we obviously were a little bit concerned. We, we wanted to know what was going on. And so we talked to the teacher, and, and she said, yes, this is one of the things that I do during recess. You know, they run a lap for each thing that they've done wrong. And my son's record on the positive side has been zero, which is good. His record on the negative side was five, and I think that's honestly because she just stops at five and doesn't want to go past. And, and so, you know, again, talking about he's a brilliant kid, you know, he's sweet, you know, he, he loves the Lord, he loves people, he loves his parents, he loves his siblings. What could possibly be going wrong? What is he doing in class? And we talk to his teacher, and what happens is that sometimes he feels like he's already gotten to wherever everybody else needs to be in the class. Like he understands, and the teacher could probably stop there and he'd be good. And so he just kind of tunes out. And he starts humming and singing songs to himself and telling jokes to the kids around him. Not because he's not paying attention, but he just felt like he was done. Like he's already gotten everything that she had to share. And so we've had to talk to him about these things. And, you know, we, we did all these different ways, trying to come at it and talk to him. And, you know, well, you need to listen to your teacher. You know, this is the right thing to do. You know, you're going to keep having to run laps. You don't like to run laps, do you? No. And it, nothing was really getting through. And then one day, it, I, I honestly believe it was just a God thing. I just took a time to sit down with him, just father to son, and we just talked about love. 
about loving Jesus, about loving his Father, and how much love I have for him, and that Jesus loves him even more, and that it hurts my heart when he gets in trouble, it hurts my heart when he lies about getting in trouble, and when he's disobedient. And, you know, it was one of those things, I, I tried all these different things, my wife had tried talking to him, my, my parents had tried talking to him, and he just, there was nothing that really clicked. And so I wasn't really, didn't have high expectations for this conversation, but as I finished telling him that, I, he looked at me and it was like immediately everything broke inside him. Just tears started pouring down his face, he couldn't even speak for a little bit. And it, it was just one of those amazing father-son moments that helped me see so much more about the relationship that God has with us. You know, that he's just wanting us to understand that if we love him, there are some natural things that are going to take place. For my son, now he has that understanding that, that it actually has an effect. That, that if he loves me, if he loves Jesus, that he's going to want to do the right things. And that it hurts when we don't do the right thing. And you know, the next day he only ran four laps. So, I mean, we still got some work to do, but... But I, I look at it as progress. And I think that that's the same way that, that God looks at us. He never gives up on us. He just says, look, I know that, that you're not perfect. I know you're not where you need to be. And I, I want you to get there. But I want you to understand, above all of that, that I love you. You don't have to do these things to make me love you. No matter what you do, I can't love you any more or any less because I love you as much as is possible. Not even humanly possible, it's beyond that. I love you as much as is possible for anyone ever at any time. And that's how much Jesus loves us. And it doesn't matter what you are or are not doing. It doesn't mean that we're absolved. It doesn't mean that you can just go out and not do anything or do all the wrong things. Because that means that there wasn't a love on the other end. There wasn't love in our hearts for him. But he continues on in verse 4. He says, You fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. And so again, it's obey your parents where? In the Lord. And then he says to bring up your children in the training and the admonition of who? Of the Lord. He continues on in verse 5. He says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to who? As to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. So even though we're bondservants here on the earth, you know, most of us are not our own boss. Most of us have a, a manager or a boss of some sort. Maybe for some of you it's a teacher or a professor. But we all understand that concept. And so he's saying that we need to be obedient to them according to the flesh. It means the day-to-day -day living. That in our lives we have authority that's been placed over us. And we need to be obedient to that authority. But we do it in sincerity of heart, not for them, but as to Christ. And then in verse 6, we do it not with eye service as men pleasers. So not just so that other people can see us and say, oh, wow, he's such a great worker. Or, oh, wow, he's such a great student. Or they do these things right all the time. Not so that we can do it for other people, but that we do it for the Lord. As bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And that is important that we see here as we, we prepare to move on, is that we're doing the will of God from the heart. Because again, we're not doing this so that other people can see us. We're not doing this as men pleasers, because we're doing this for God, and God can see straight to the heart. God sees when we're doing something for our own selfish gain. 
God sees when we're doing something and we have the smile outside and say, you know, I'm just joyfully serving the Lord, but inside we feel like we've been nagged or we've been guilted into this, we've been pressured into whatever it is. God sees past all of that. God sees directly to our hearts and he knows what's going on inside. And so he says, doing the will of God from the heart. And then he continues on in verse 7. You know, children, obey your parents. There was three verses. Fathers, do not provoke your children. One verse. And then he just keeps going on and on about bond servants and how they're supposed to serve. In verse 7, he says, goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. I don't think that it's a coincidence that he puts it in back-to-back verses just in a different way. That we need to do these things for the Lord and not for other people. You know, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because some of you might have a boss in the room. But how many of you guys have terrible bosses? How many of you guys have ever thought, my life would be so much better if I just had a better boss? If I didn't have this boss? You know, there are people that rightfully so have had to leave jobs because their bosses were that awful. And so he's talking about it. Don't do it for them. Do it for me. Do it for me. Do it for Christ. With goodwill, doing service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters, going to the other side of it, you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So he, again, doesn't catch every single relationship that's out there. But he gives us a pretty good idea that this covers every relationship out there. And that it involves love. You know, that's the basics, the the foundation of this. Is that if you love Jesus, if you have a relationship with Jesus, everything in your life is different. You know, again, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but, but how many of you are stuck in a dead end? You feel like you are just stuck in a dead end today. Whether it's a job, whether it's a relationship, whether it's, you know, saving for retirement, whatever it is, you you just feel like you've hit this wall and you are stuck and there is no place out. Like you're just responsible and you're just going to keep putting your head to the plow and and you're just going to keep working at it. That's not what God desires for you. Because you're not doing it for men. You're not doing it for other people. You're doing it for him. And that means that if you're doing it for him, you are a child of God, then you are never going to be stuck in a dead end anything. Because you have a motivation. You have a reason to live. You have a reason to work. You have a reason to do everything that you do unto the glory of God. Because of the love that we have for him. But first and foremost, the love that he has for us. You know, when, having been a business major and gone through all of these management courses, one of the things that, that they highlight so often in all of these courses is that you need to make sure that your employees feel wanted, accepted, and empowered. That they need to feel wanted. They, they need to feel like you need them, that you want them there. They need to feel accepted. Like the, thing, the work that they do is good. When it's good, that you let them know to feel appreciated but also that they feel empowered, that they're given opportunity to go out and to do things and, and that it's not a dead-end job, that you can get around all of these things that cause lack of motivation if you just do those things for your employees. And I would suggest to you that God has already done all of those things for us all the time, all the time. He doesn't need any one of us. None of us. He could do everything that he needs to do here on the earth and everywhere else without a single one of us. 
but he wants us. He wants us to be involved. He wants us to be a part of the things that he's doing, and he wants us to feel appreciated. He wants us to be a part of his ministry here on the earth. He's also empowered us. He's given us opportunities. He's given us gifts, as we're going to see in a little bit. He's empowered us. He's given us opportunity. He wants us. He desires us. He desires for us to get closer to him and to be used more by him. And I can promise you that there is never going to be a time in your life that you just focus on love as that motivation for whatever it is that God has called you to do, that you go out and do it. There will never be a time that you feel bummed out after you finish. It just doesn't happen. When you get up and you do whatever God has placed in your heart to do and you do it with the right motivation, that you're doing it unto the Lord, it's impossible for you to be down in the dumps. It's just not possible. What happens, though, is that we get involved in work, whatever work it is, you know, whether it's a public ministry, like what I'm doing now, whether it's a, maybe a, a slightly more private ministry, you're serving in one of the other things in a church, or maybe it's not even a, a ministry in that sense. Maybe it's just doing your job well unto the Lord and being an example by your life in your workplace or in your home as grandparents to your, your grandchildren, as parents to your children. But whatever it is, if we're doing these things right, there, there's no way that we can be bummed out about it. But what happens is we get so caught up in the rut and the mundane and the routine that we lose the motivation of love and we start looking at it as duty, as honor, responsibility, sometimes fear. And so we need to rework that. We need to get back to that place of doing it for love. But he goes through and he talks about all these things and, and, and that kind of leads us into part of what, what this next point is. And, and that's to understand that there has to be some sort of activity in our lives. There has to be something, an outflow. It can't just be us hoarding everything that God's putting into us. There needs to be an outflow of these things, an outflow of the working of the Spirit. And there are some people that, that I think get too caught up in the past. Greg Reed shared with us a couple of weeks ago, and I loved the study, and there were some things that, that I think really, really hit home for me. But he talked about needing to get past your past. But he was talking just about the negative past. But I think sometimes we also have to get past the positive past. And what I mean by that is that, that there are some Christians that are so locked up by the things that they've done and accomplished that they, they're reliving the glory years of their relationship and they become inactive in the present. I used to be involved in this ministry that used to do this. Or I used to attend this fellowship and we used to do all these things. Or I used to lead a Bible study or to write a devotional. Or when I first got saved, I did all of these things. And really when you get to the heart of that matter, what are we doing right now? I mean, all of us hopefully have great stories about what happened when we first got saved. You know, I look at... And when I first got saved and, you know, just wanting to, to convert the world, wanting to convert everybody, and I still have that desire. But when I first got saved, I didn't care who you were. You were going to hear about that in one way or another. I was a kid, and so maybe that helped because, you know, things are so much simpler to see clearly when you're a kid. But just on fire. And, and then you talk to seasoned Christians. And they say, oh, well, he's going to wear out of that. You know, it, it, he's going to burn out a little bit. You know, everybody's like that when they first get saved. 
But why isn't everybody like that all the way through? I mean, we should be. We should have that passion, that burning desire just to be ambassadors of Christ, as we're going to see in a little bit. We should want that. We should own that. Like, that is who we are. If you are a child of God today, you have a tremendous thing to live for, and that is Jesus Christ. That is tremendous motivation in everything, not just, oh, well, it's motivation to read the Word, it's motivation to worship, it's motivation to attend church, to get involved in a ministry at church. No, no, no. It's motivation for life, for everything, for everything that we do, everything that we face, that should be that motivation. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, this is Paul writing. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, at this point, is not talking about all the things that he did in academia and in the religious synagogues. He's not talking about being a Pharisee and all the, the studies that he devoted his life to. He's talking about that and also everything that he's done since coming to know Jesus. All of the good things that God has used him for, he's saying, I forget all of it. Yes, it was great and all of it happened, but I don't want to live in that. I want to live in what Jesus wants to do today. What does Jesus want to do today in my life and through my life? That's the motivation. That's the excitement. That's what causes us to want to not only get up in the morning, but want to go to work, want to go to school, want to, to spend time with the family, want to do all the things that God has placed in our lives to do, and to do them well, is to have that love and that motivation for Jesus, and really a motivation from him, because we receive that love. And if you have a child, if you are a child of God, you are already involved in active ministry every moment of every day. You know, he goes through and he's talking about bond servants, being obedient and doing all these things. He's talking about that wherever we are, whatever we are doing, we are to do it as to Christ. Not with eye service to be seen by others. Not as men pleasers to get in good with the boss or, or the spouse. Not to men. We're not to prioritize what others think of our deeds over what God thinks. But instead, we do these things as doulos, as bondservants of Christ, to do the will of God from the heart with goodwill as to the Lord. There's four things there, and he hits them real quick, but those are very, very important, that we do the will of God, that we do it from the heart, not out of compulsion, not out of guilt, not out of anything else, but from the heart with goodwill, with goodwill, not, not serving somebody and saying, oh, I cannot believe you made me do this for you but to do it with goodwill and to do it unto the Lord. To do it unto the Lord. What a difference that makes. And I shared with the congregation last night, and I'm going to share the same thing with you this morning, that I'm going to go out on a limb here, but if, if you are giving of yourself in, in a ministry, if you're giving of your time, you're giving of, of your resources, whatever it is, if you are doing something for the ministry here at Calvary Chapel of El Paso, and you are doing it because you are guilted into it, because you feel like you have this responsibility or duty and there's no love in it, because you're fearful of what others might think if you're not involved or if you're not giving, I would suggest to you that you need to stop. 
You need to stop serving. You need to stop giving. Whatever it is that you're doing, you need to stop. And you need to reevaluate. Where is your heart at? Where is your life at? Where is your relationship with Jesus at? And what is the motivation? Because if the motivation is not love for Jesus, then all you're doing is wasting time, wasting resources. And that's a, that's a tough thing to say from a pulpit. Okay, because we get up here all the time and we talk to you about the needs that we have for different ministries. Obviously, children's ministry is one of those that I think every church ever from the beginning of the church has always had trouble getting children's ministry workers. But we talk to you about the needs of that. We rarely, if ever, talk to you about the financial needs. We have them. I mean, it, it's obvious we're here, so obviously there are financial needs, but we don't talk about them. We don't pull on, on your heartstrings and, you know, dig the knife in and try to guilt you to give of yourself, of your time, of your resources. We talk about being cheerful givers, about being good stewards, and about loving the Lord. Because if you do those things, all the rest of it, God's going to take care of it. God's going to take care of it. He's going to raise up people that, that we might not have ever even noticed, never even considered to do a ministry. You know, there are countless stories throughout the history of the church of how people were just in dire need in a ministry. And instead of getting on the radio and, you know, we, we're not going to make it if you don't give. We, we may not be on the radio next week. We may not be on television if you don't buy this prayer handkerchief right now. We don't do those things because that's not what God has called us to. God has called us to be faithful to him. He's called you to be faithful to him. And we trust that God's going to take care of it. And he has. He's been abundantly faithful. Abundantly faithful. He's been gracious beyond measure. We, we have been blessed so much more than we deserve. And that's what grace is. And so if you are doing anything for the Lord, but not doing it really for the Lord, that you're doing it for men, you're looking for praise or, or you feel like it's your responsibility or duty and you're not doing it really out of a love for Jesus, stop. Just stop until you can get to that place where it's a joy to serve. It's a joy to give. It's something that you love to do because you've been blessed and you've been given the opportunity. Do things with a joyful heart. And so that gets us to this, this understanding of working with God. And the work of God, you know, you can do a, a lot of different things as you go through the Word of God and see all the different areas that God is desiring to work in. But one of them that, that I wanted to highlight this morning is from John chapter 6, verses 26 through 29. And Jesus answered them and he said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. And so the crowds are coming to him. You know, he's fed all these multitudes and he's done all these miraculous things. But he's telling them, you guys aren't coming because you've seen the signs, because you recognize who I am. You're coming because you ate and you were filled. But don't labor for the food which perishes. Don't, don't just work for the things here on the earth but for the food which endures to everlasting life. And so in verse 28, they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Okay, so they're almost there. They kind of get it, and they're asking the question, okay, that sounds good, Jesus, so what do we do to do that? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. This is the work of God, that you believe in Jesus Christ. 
that you believe in him. That, that's the, one of the phrases for having a relationship with Jesus, of being a Christian, of being a child of God, of being a part of the body of Christ, that this is the work of God that you believe in him. That's where it has to start. We talked about that at the beginning, that, that Paul, as he was writing in Ephesians chapter 6, he's talking to the church. You know, in a little bit, we're going to get into Matthew 25. And in Matthew 25, he's talking about the church. He's talking about the body of Christ. He's not talking about the world at large. He's talking about those who are a part of his family. And so that's where it starts, that you believe in him whom he sent. And then in John chapter 4, a couple of chapters back, in verse 31, it says, In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. And so Jesus, he was a human. He had all of the same weaknesses, all of the same trials, all of the same challenges and temptations. He had to eat. You know, Jesus ate. There's no way around it. He was human. And yet he said that there was such a greater fulfillment than just that physical food. He said, my food, the, the motivation, the, the challenge, the substance of my life is to do the will of him who sent me. My purpose for being, my reason for everything that I do here on the earth is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You know, in John chapter 17, I, I didn't put it in my notes, but, but in John chapter 17, as Jesus is going through and he's, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells the Father as he's praying that I have finished the work that you have sent me to do. He's finished. He did it all. And that's the picture of completion that we are to have. This example of Jesus Christ, that in everything he did, everything that he did, he did well. He did it to the best of his abilities. You know, I, we, don't, we don't have any recollection or stories about the first portion of his life. I mean, what, what must that have been like? As a kid, I always used to think about that growing up in church. Like, was Jesus the one that everybody said, why can't you be more like him? You know, or was Jesus the one that, that every time there was an, uh, a question in the synagogue that, you know, Jesus' hand went up? You know, was he the, what did that look like for him to have been perfect, completely blameless? You know, I, I think that one of the reasons that we don't have such a large description of that, but we get a really good description of, of his ministry and how he how he was effective and, and the ways that he lived his life as a, an adult are because kids get it. Kids don't need, you know, four Gospels of this is what Jesus did when he was five. This is what Jesus did when he was seven. Because they get it. They understand. You know, my three-year-old daughter, one of her favorite phrases right now is Jesus doesn't want me to. And it's about all sorts of different things. And she uses it right. I mean, it's, she's never saying, like, Jesus doesn't want me to listen to you, Dad. And, you know, like, it's never that. It's always good things. Like, Jesus doesn't want me to be scared. Jesus doesn't want me to lie. Jesus doesn't want me to hit people. She's three, and she's got it. She understands. But for us, you know, we, we needed that example because we start to complicate things. And, well, you know, Jesus didn't go through this. But he did. 
And we needed that. We needed to be able to see that. And so Jesus finished the work of the Father. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus is this perfect example. And that gets us to, to where we're going to be for the remainder of the study this morning, and that's Matthew chapter 25. I know that we've gone through a lot of different passages and jumped around, but, but Matthew 25, if you have your Bibles this morning, if you would go ahead and turn there, because we're going to be going through verses 13 all the way through 30 for the remainder of the, the time that we have together this morning. But in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is sharing a parable with them. And so in verse 13, he says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground, and he hid his Lord's money. And so before we get to the second part of it, the reckoning, just to give you a, a bit of an understanding, a background of this first portion, this is a parable that Jesus is sharing regarding, again, the body of Christ. This is not for non-believers. This is for believers. Okay? It's a parable regarding the work of the body of Christ. At the particular time that, that Jesus was speaking, there, there wasn't really a good place for you to, to just kind of leave everything on autopilot. So if you had a lot of goods or money, you were wealthy, you were well off, or you ran a business, and you needed to travel to a far country, that means a long time. Okay, the Travel was very, very different than it is now. You know, now we complain and we get upset if we can't find a nonstop flight to wherever it is that we're going. It wasn't like that back then. You know, days, weeks, months, sometimes they'd be gone for years. Okay, so travel, he's getting ready to go uh, on a very, very long journey. And so when you were going to do that, instead of just hiding all of your stuff, one of the things that was very common in practice was that if you had a lot of things, you would find trusted servants. Usually it was better to find more than one so that you didn't have all your eggs in one basket but that you would find trusted servants and you would divide your, your business and or your wealth among them and leave them in charge of it. They were trusted and they were entrusted with a great deal of responsibility. Okay, and so, so that's what we have here is that, that he chooses three servants and he's preparing to leave on a long journey and he gathers up these three very trusted servants and he divides the money amongst them. Now. I, I can honestly tell you that until this week, I had never really, really taken the time to fine-tune what exactly a talent was. You know, I, I knew that it was a big number, but, you know, it was just kind of, oh, it's big, and, and it just kept on. You know, I didn't think that it was important to the story. And yet it is tremendously important. Because one talent, you look at it and you say, well, one guy got five, one got two, and this guy, he only got one. According to his ability, he must have been a worthless guy. Well, actually, in reality, one was like 20 years of wages, okay? That, that's your salary or your wages for 20 years. That's the equivalent to roughly one talent. And we're not talking after taxes and mortgage and kids and all the other stuff that, that takes the money out of your wallet. We're just saying your gross income, like what you made for an entire year, everything that came in, now multiply that times 20, and that was one talent, okay? 
So when he divides it up and he's giving this man, this servant, one talent, it might have been less than everybody else, but that was still a tremendously large amount because even at roughly minimum wage here, that's about $300,000, okay? This is not a small sum. So this is a big deal that he's doing this and he's spreading this out. So obviously as this relates to us, each of us has been given talents, not just money, but we've been given abilities. Talents. That's actually where the English word talents comes from, is from this, this understanding. So we've been given talents, abilities, skills. And notice that all of those things are plural. It's not just one. Like you've been given multiple things, $300,000 worth. Like you've been given a lot. If you are a child of God, you have been blessed with a lot to give. A lot to give. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about just your whole life. Each one of us has been blessed with a lot to give. Not everybody is a, a public speaker. Not everybody is wealthy. Not everybody is good with children. Not everybody is good in a small group setting. Not everybody is whatever, because we've all been gifted differently. Each of us has been given varying skills, abilities, and blessings, but no child of God has been left out. And Paul writes in Ephesians that the body has been gifted in all these different ways so that we can function well as a whole, not so that each one of us can look at the other and say, well, I wish I was that, or I wish I had been given something else. Also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, and then he carries over into the first verse of chapter 6, Paul says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for Christ in everything that we do, as though God were pleading through us, through us. He's working through us. He's pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, and that we are ambassadors of this righteousness, of this glorious hope. And so then in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, we then, as workers together with him, not just for him, but with him, we also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And so we see that we are ambassadors for Christ always and in all things, and that we are workers together with him. Jesus is not working for us or in our will, but he's calling us to work alongside him. And the picture of a, the yoke on oxen or on, on beasts of burden, it's a great understanding of this concept because it was made in such a way that there was a, a stronger side and a weaker side so that there could, they could pair you up, so that there could be a stronger animal on one side and a weaker or less mature, maybe, animal on the other side, and that they could plow together so that it didn't go every which way, but that they were able to remain straight. So they could split the load, but not evenly, but that they would split the load and they would work together. And that's what it is with Jesus, is that we split the load with him, not because he needed our help, but because he wants to throw us a bone, basically. He wants us to be a part of it. He wants us to get involved. He wants us to experience that. And so we have that, that picture, that understanding. But then he says that last part is really what we want to focus on is not to receive the grace of God in vain. To not receive the grace of God in vain. What, what does that mean? Like I'm sure that most of us have probably seen that phrase, but, but have we ever stopped to really think about what that means? Like really stop and think about it. I think the first place you've got to start is what is grace? 
You know, we, we know the, the definitions. We, we've talked about them. I've talked about them. I've shared them before. You know, it's this unmerited favor. Okay, but what does that look like? What are some basic examples? And, and as I was preparing this week, I, I was given some very, very basic examples. And one of them was from my childhood that it had just never fully clicked until this week. But I remember going to Peter Piper when I was a kid, and that was like one of the, you know, when something special, you know, I got my report card or, you know, it was a birthday, Peter Piper was, was a place that we would go a lot of times. And, and my parents would let us play skee ball and, you know, all the other games, and, and we would win tickets. And as a kid, you don't understand the whole concept that you could go to the dollar store across the street and probably pay two bucks for whatever you just spent 50 bucks trying to get with tickets. But, but when we were there, it was just so exciting, you know, the, the thrill of getting tickets and what can I get. And, you know, I'm sure like most kids, like I, I was looking at the top shelf and how come I can't get that? You know, it's because it's like 70,000 tickets and you've got 10. And, but, but the excitement of having all these tickets and what can I do with them? You know, I've been given so many. I've got all of this stuff. And usually what would happen is there would be a point where it wasn't that there wasn't anything left that I wanted, but there wasn't anything left that I could afford for my tickets. And so we had tickets left over. And instead of just blowing them on, you know, whatever, something that wasn't going to last or that we didn't want, my dad would oftentimes take those tickets and then he would just look around and, and he would give them to, you know, maybe a little kid that was really struggling to get any tickets. Or a family that, you know, you could see that they were just a few tickets short from whatever it is that the kid really, really wanted. And they just didn't have the money to go get more tickets or whatever it was. And he would walk over and he would just give them the tickets. Hey, do you think you could use these? And he would just hand them over. He would hand over my tickets. You know, what was he thinking? <laughs> but he would hand over these tickets. And it wasn't one of those things that he would say, oh, and God bless you. Or, you know, I'm a pastor. Or, you know, he, he wasn't doing it for any other reason than just to bless them. Just to bless them. And who knows if that ever had any kind of a, a kingdom impact on their lives. But now as I grew up this week, it had a kingdom impact on me. You know, just the example of that, of being gracious in the small things. You know, and, and something that, that has become just a... a a conscious part of my life, something that I try to do, and this is not to tell you that I'm holy and righteous and all these other things, because I'm not. I still am very messed up, and God is still working a lot in me. But something that God has really placed in my heart is that there are things that, that a lot of times I'm given, and maybe I can't use it, or I just have no desire to use it, whatever it is. You know, this past week, somebody came, and they, they had basketball shoes and they just you know hey we just wanted to to give them and so they gave them to me and I I took a look at them and you know they're they're four pairs of basketball shoes I don't really play basketball anymore you know I, I have a need for for a good pair of shoes to walk around in but I don't play basketball so I definitely don't need four pairs of shoes so being able to try them and look at them and say hey you know what I like one let's see what we can do with the other three now, that, that doesn't mean, well, let's see where we can sell the other three or how much money we can make off of it or what we can trade for. But just, you know, there's got to be somebody that's in need, maybe not even a basketball player, but maybe just somebody that is really in dire need of something to put on their feet. And being able to find that person and just give it to them. That's grace. You're not going to get anything back. 
Especially if you're going and you're, you're doing something like giving to, to a homeless shelter or a rescue mission or, or savers or the goodwill or maybe even somebody on the street. You're not going to get anything back. You know, you can't, if you give the guy on the street a hundred bucks, you can't claim that on your taxes. It's just goodwill. It's just grace. It's unmerited favor. He did nothing to deserve that. And yet, God places it in your heart to do it. So you do it. That's grace. So what then does it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? Going back a, a few chapters into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul prepares us for that. He gives us an understanding. In verse 9, he says, For I am the least of all the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So Paul says, look, I did a lot of terrible things before I came to know Jesus Christ, before he became a part of my life and we had a real relationship. And I did all these things, so I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. What he's saying is that by God's grace, I didn't deserve it. I deserved punishment. But instead of punishment, God blessed me with an opportunity to be involved in his ministry here on the earth. And so by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. So then what does that mean? He continues on and he lets us know. He says, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. And so he says, the grace that was poured out upon me was not extended to me in vain because I labored more abundantly. I labored more abundantly because I recognized that I was given gifts. I was given things that I didn't even deserve to have and that I went out and I used them. I went out and I used them. You know, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about how God has prepared beforehand the good works for us to walk in. Like he's already set it up. He's not only gifted and empowered you, but he's given you the perfect opportunity. He's prepared the heart of whoever it is that you're going to be ministering to. He's done all the heavy lifting. He just wants you to be faithful. He wants me to be faithful. He wants us to use the things that he's given us for a good thing. And that good thing is him. So that we would walk in these good works. That we are his workmanship. It's Ephesians chapter 2 verses, verse 10 if you want to know. It's for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Like this word for word. It's straight out of the Bible. God prepared those good works for us to walk in beforehand. And he doesn't want couch potatoes. Like he, he didn't do all the heavy lifting so that we didn't have to do any lifting. He did all the heavy lifting so that we would be able to do the small amount that he left for us. That we would be able to work together with him. Everything we do is empowered by the abundance of God's grace and his gifts to us. To, to receive the grace of God in vain, there's a lot of different ways that we can do it. One is obvious. It's to be a couch potato, to be a pew potato, to just sit there and do nothing ever with all that God has given to you. Well, obviously, that's receiving the grace of God in vain. But I would also suggest to you that sometimes receiving the grace of God in vain is played out by us looking around and saying, well, how come I can't do what they do? Or how come I didn't get that gift? You know, I'm... I'm blessed. I, I have been graciously given six feet of height, okay? 
I say that that's a blessing because there are a lot of people that wish that they were six feet and are not. I always wish that I was seven feet, okay? They, basketball would have been easy, you know? It would have been so much better. You know, I, I used to think as a kid, man, if I could just dunk, like, the, my life would be so much better, you know? I, the mind of a kid, I don't know. But if I could dunk, it would have been so much better. But I, if I had just been hung up on that for the rest of my life, you know what? I, it's just not fair, God, because I, I wanted to be seven feet tall, and you made other people seven feet tall. How come I couldn't be seven feet tall? And I never did anything anywhere with all that I have been given because I was so hung up on what I hadn't been given or so hung up by what somebody else could do and I couldn't do it as well as they could, I'd be miserable. And there are people, maybe even here this morning, that are living that. That you're miserable, not because you're not blessed, but because you don't recognize how blessed you truly are. Everybody's been given at least one talent, at least one. We've all been blessed, but are we doing something with it? There's a quote by Spurgeon. I think they're going to have it up for you on the screens. It says, grace makes us the servants of God while still we are the servants of men. So we are the servants of God even while we're still doing things for others and we're living here on the earth. It says, it enables us to do the business of heaven while we are attending to the business of earth. So while we are doing the day-to-day, the mundane, the daily, the grind, we are able to still be doing things for heaven. It enables us to do the business of heaven while attending the business of earth. And then the last thing he says is that it sanctifies the common duties of life by showing us how to perform them in the light of heaven. It sanctifies, it sets apart, it makes holy the mundane, the daily grind. All the things that that nobody else is ever going to see that you have to do. All the responsibilities that you've been given that nobody else might ever recognize or acknowledge. This allows us to sanctify those things by showing us how to perform them in the light of heaven. That Jesus did that. His life was sanctified. His life was sanctified in everything that he did. You know, before he started his ministry here on the earth, he had to work. He did other things. He was the son of a carpenter. You don't think that he did some carpentry? Who knows? Maybe some of those things are still around because he was good at whatever it is that he did. But to sanctify even the simple things. And so the opposite of this vainly received grace is to be found faithful. And this is where we wrap it up this morning in the, the end of Matthew 25 in this section, verses 19 through 23. It says, After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And so he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. So he doubled his money. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things, and I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. So he gained two. He doubled his money too. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And so even though these two guys had been gifted differently, one had been gifted with much more according to his responsibility, according to his own ability, according to whatever it is that the master saw in him, 
He gave one five, another two, and another one. But the response, the reward for both the man that had been given five and the man that had been given two were identical. Literally identical in the parable. They're word for word. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. So faithfulness. Faithfulness over an extended period of time, not just in short spurts, but over an extended period of time. It says, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came. You know, after a long time away, Jesus is coming back. We all believe that, right? That Jesus is coming back. Okay, so it's a long time. You know, hopefully it's not that much longer for us. Hopefully we all get to see that day come in our earthly lifetime. But it's definitely been a long time. You know, a couple of thousand years, that's a long time. But that doesn't mean he's not coming back. But he is coming back, and so it was a long time coming. But then the judgment was the same for both of these guys, and it wasn't, you did so awesome in getting my, my name out there. You did so awesome in, in doing this, that, and the other. It wasn't that you were so skillful in the way that you handled this. But what does he say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Faithfulness is what God is desiring from his children. We, we go back to God doesn't need us. Okay? He doesn't need us. doesn't need a single one of us. So it's not about, well, I, I did so skillfully what it is that God asked me to do. No, you did that so skillfully because God gifted you with those skills. And he prepared those good works for you to walk in beforehand. So really, you just kind of fell into it. But if you were faithful to fall into a line, faithful to fall into what God had, then God was honored. You were blessed. And that's the, that's the whole point here. The faithfulness. I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that in my life, in my experiences in ministry, faithfulness is far more important than any kind of skill, gifting, and ability that anyone might have. You know, if, if somebody is willing to, I'll use the worship team as an example because it's an easy, it's a, a visible one. If I know that there's going to be somebody and I, and I have to pick between two people for one particular spot, and I know that this person is very dependable, that they're going to be there. And you know, things come up and they, every now and then they're not going to be able to make it, but that if nothing major has happened, that they're going to be there. And then I have another person that is just light years ahead of them in playing abilities and skills. But, you know, every other week something comes up and, you know, sometimes they don't even let me know that they're not going to make it. And then we're scrambling at the last minute. Every single time I'm going to pick the faithfulness. Every single time. And that, that's the way God desires it. He wants faithfulness. He doesn't need your skills and abilities. He needs your faithfulness because he will give you the skills and the abilities if you have the faithfulness. If you have the faithfulness, God's going to come through with the rest. So inside the church, we, we've allowed it to become just like the world many times, that we honor the skills and the abilities over the faithfulness. And I think we need to get away from that. We need to get back to the faithfulness. Faithfulness is so, so important. And for us to understand that that's where we get to enter into the, the joy of your master, enter into the rest of your master. 
Like that's, that's really the end goal here, right? I mean, we all want to go to heaven. Amen? Like we really want to go to heaven. But we don't just want to squeak into heaven, right? Like we want to go in on a, on a high. You know, we want to go in on a hot streak. You know, if, if it was possible, you know, you want to be able to go in that your dying breath was leading somebody to Christ. I mean, that would be the way to go. I, I'm reminded of a story that, that I heard this week, and I'll, I'll try to condense it because of time, and I know we're getting short on it. But there was this young girl that, that had spoken to a, a speaker, a traveling speaker, and she was a Christian speaker and, and sharing all these different things. And this young girl, she was in middle school, and she came up after one of the sessions, and she just wanted to talk to her and, and ask for prayer and, and come to find out that this young girl had leukemia. She'd been diagnosed with leukemia, and she'd been given months to live. And so, you know, she said, well, what can I pray for for you? Like, obviously leukemia, but what specifically can I pray for in that? And, you know, she was expecting, you know, for, for relief from the symptoms, for pain relief, for, you know, emotional strength, for strength for the family, you know, all the different things that you would think in a situation like that. And that the, <clears throat> the answer blew her away. Because she said, there's one thing, before I go, I would really love to be able to witness to my entire school. And, I mean, it just blew her away. And she said, well, of course, like, definitely, I can, I can pray for you for that. And so she ends up keeping in touch with this girl. And this girl actually makes it all the way through middle school. And, you know, she's actually started to get close to this lady. And, and she gets to high school. And she's a sophomore. And during her sophomore year... There, there's a birthday party for, you know, just friends and family, very small thing. But this lady has now gotten so close with the family that she's invited to come. And while they're at this birthday party, the girl turns to all of them and she lets them know, I'm ready to go home. I'm, I'm ready to go home. I, I've, I feel like I've done everything I'm supposed to here and I'm ready to go home. And so they thought, wow, you know, that okay. And, and she left. And a couple of days later, this girl passed away. And so, you know, she came, this lady came back for the funeral. And what had happened is that this was a fairly large high school, and she had impacted so many people just by her life, not, not necessarily by witnessing directly, but, but just by her life and the testimony that the school had offered buses, and for anybody that wanted to attend the funeral, that classes would be canceled for that day. And so they have all these buses show up in front of the school that morning, and the buses take all of these kids to, to the funeral and staff and teachers. And so the, the funeral service didn't go very long, and it wasn't long-winded. It wasn't all of this stuff about her life. You know, it was just very simple, very, very sweet. And, and there was a very simple altar call given. And the pastor that was giving it, you know, is just more like a, you know, this is what we do. This is what we need to do. It's not really, it wasn't like pulling on heartstrings. And there were hundreds of people that came forward to receive Christ with just the simple altar call of, who here would like to receive Jesus Christ? Because that was the impact that this girl had had with whatever small gifts and small amount of time she had been given. She impacted an entire school and really I would suggest an entire city just by her life. She's... I, I don't even know her name. They didn't even mention her name. We, nobody outside of that city may ever know her name. And yet, she did so much for the kingdom of God.
she was so faithful in what she had. And I would pray that that story would be something that would resonate in your heart and your mind, that you would be mindful of that, that you would think about what tremendous blessing and gifts you have been given. And that we would be about our Father's business, that we would finish the work that he's given to us to complete. We would be ambassadors of Christ in everything that we say, everything that we do, and everywhere that we go. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to, to spend time in your word, for the opportunity to hear you speak to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that, that out of everything that has been shared this morning, that anything that, that was just from me and not from you, Lord, that, that that would just blow away. But that everything that was from you, Lord, that that would resonate in our hearts. That we would hold on to the things that you have spoken to us through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray for every single child of God in this place, Lord, that your spirit would come upon us in a great and mighty way, that, that we would be able to impact not just the rest of this fellowship, but, Lord, that we would impact this neighborhood, this city, this state, this nation, this world, for your glory, for your honor. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to, to open eyes, open understanding, that, that those that have already come to you, that, that have already entered into your family, that all of us would be able to see and to know your will and your desire for our lives, the things that you desire for us to step out and to do, that we would be bold, that we would be unashamed, and that we would be encouraged to work alongside you. I pray, Lord, also for anyone here this morning that might be stuck in a rut, that might feel that they're in a dead end of any sort, a relationship, a health issue, a, a job. Lord, I pray that you would restore unto them the joy of your salvation, that they would be just recharged, that they would be rekindled, that they would be motivated by your love and their love for you. And Lord, finally, we pray for anyone here this morning that has yet to become a part of your family. For those that might be here this morning and maybe, maybe they feel like there's nothing left. There's no reason to live. Or maybe they just feel like everything in their life is a dead end. I pray, Lord, that right now you would minister to their hearts, that you would have your hand heavy upon them, and that today would be the day of their salvation. Today would be that day that they finally recognize that they have something glorious to live for, and that that is you. And so we give you all of these situations. We give you everything else that's going on in this fellowship, in this body. We pray that you would be exalted, honored, and glorified. And we ask and pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you all would please stand. There will be people available with you up front to pray if God has laid anything upon your heart. And definitely, if there's anyone here that has yet to receive the Lord for the first time and you want to do that, please seek someone out. You know, seek me out, seek somebody else out here, but get that taken care of today. We're going to close this morning by singing, I love you, Lord. I love you.